Let us pray that the word of God that is read would be faithfully taught and effectually received. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do this morning once again just acknowledge you as God and thank you for the awesome blessings that you've given us, even the blessing of your word. We do ask as we have prayed in song that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, O Lord. Renew in us right, Christ-honoring and God-glorifying spirits. Change our opinions of ourselves. Change our opinion of the world. Might we think rightly of who we are, the world in which we exist, and the God we are called to glorify. Be with us now as we go into your word once again. Be glorified in all that we say. Be magnified in our thoughts, in our meditations. Might we see Jesus and him alone might we serve. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we are um, once again returning to our time in Judges. It seems like a world of time and away since we have last been in the book of Judges. But by God's grace, we are back at it. And we are in chapter 13. And we are taking up the life of Samson. As we said, um, when we reached Gideon, that perhaps more than any of the other judges, and surely more than any of the other judges, we know more about Gideon and Samson than we do about any of the other names that are found in the roll call of judges in the book of Judges. Perhaps most of us, if we've been around the church for any length of time, are quite familiar with the life of, of Samson. Indeed, it is a life full of power, full of potential, but also full of tragedy. There's a lesson in all of that for all of us as individuals. There's a lesson in that for us as a church. But this morning, we take up the life of Samson, not in his power and, and not in his position and not even in so much his potential, but we take up the lesson of Samuel concerning the promise, the promise of God to his people. That was to be seen and understood in the birth of this baby boy. What an awesome picture this birth is, even in reading it. As you were reading it, hopefully your mind took you to Luke chapter 1 as you were reminiscing just recently about the, the, the Christmas season and being reminded here in Judges chapter 13 of the birth of Christ. You can see here that God is sovereignly working his plan, even from the beginning, giving his people just that much of a picture, the glories that were to come as he brings this baby into the world, picturing, as it were, the birth of his own son. You know, recently I was, I was given a book by a friend, and the book um, contained a couple chapters in there on reincarnation. 
And he wanted me to read it because he wanted to somehow argue logically and even biblically for the doctrine of reincarnation. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this uh, doctrine of reincarnation, basically it is the understanding that our lives are, 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 are cyclical. They're just going around and around and around that we live this life. And based upon how we live this life, we come back again. The idea of reincarnated means to re-enter the flesh. And so we enter the world again at another time and in another body. And then we live our lives again. And as we live those lives, depending on how well we live this time, then depends on how we come back again. It just goes around and around and around and around. Well, the idea, that, that idea does not square with Scripture, of course. We read in Hebrews, we read in Hebrews chapter 9, that there is pointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We understand that. We understand that Christianity doesn't teach this cyclical existence. That we are not on a merry-go-round that just goes round and round. But our lives are headed in a pointed direction. That there is a specific point in which our lives begin. And there is a specific destiny to which our lives is, are headed. And for those of us who are in Christ That reality, that destiny is an eternal glory with him. And for those who are not in Christ, that destiny is the tragic, horrific existence of life without him. And so we understand that the Christian life, that the human life is a life that is not cyclical, but it is linear. It's moving along a path. But when you read the scriptures, there is an aspect that seems to be of our lives that does get cyclical, unfortunately, from time to time. And that is the aspect of sin. Sin can get cyclical very, very, very fast. And we've seen it in the book of Judges, haven't we not? As we've been making our way through this portion of Scripture, it seemed like Israel is on this perpetual cycle of sin. It would appear that they're just on this merry-go-round of iniquity. Now, if we're honest this morning, this is not only the state of Israel, this is often the state of our own Lives. How many of us have not found ourselves on that merry-go-round a time or two? When we get caught up in a sin, a certain aspect of sin, and we find ourselves on that merry-go-round, it just goes round and round and round, and it seems like that just spins faster and faster and faster. You know, there's a reason for this. The reason for this, beloved, is because sin is not just an act. Sin is not just a power, a, a, a thought, but sin is a power. 
It is a power. It is an authority to which we yield ourselves and thus find ourselves within its merciless grip. you've ever been caught in any type of sin that has this and the power of it has been displayed, you know what I'm talking about. Those who find themselves in various types of addiction could testify that they find their life is just going round and round and round and they can't get off of the merry-go-round. Ever found yourself even now, perhaps in your adolescence, and found yourself in that cycle of sin where you find yourself seeking self-satisfaction and self-gratification and self-pleasure? You know just how powerful sin can be. You try to wheel yourself off of that merry-go-round, but it just goes round and round and round and round because sin is not just an act or a thought. It is a power, and that power must be broken. And only God, beloved, can break the power of sin. You ever notice that Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 21, he says, sin reigns? Sin reigns. When you think of reigning, what do you think of? You think of authority. You think of power. Paul says, until Christ, sin reigns. In our lives. That merry-go-round just goes round and round and round and round. Somebody's got to pull the plug. Somebody's got to throw a wrench in the gears. You can't do it. You're too busy going round. This is what Charles Wesley, who understood this very well, wrote when he says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And then he says, He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails. That's what God does. God comes in and he breaks the power of sin and he gets you off of the merry-go-round. If you got any victory this morning, if you're off of that merry-go-round this morning, it's because, not because you willed yourself off, because God pulled the plug. His grace and his blood through a rich in the gears. He got you off. And this morning, we see God doing just this in the nation of Israel. They're on this merry-go-round again. 
That's what they're on. They're on this merry-go-round again. For the Bible says, Israel once again has done evil in the sight of the Lord. There's the merry-go-round. We're back on it. We're back on it. If you've been with us and you've seen in the book of Judges, this is a common refrain. We're back on the merry-go-round. What the birth of Samson literally is, is the birth of a salvation whereby his people are getting off the merry-go-round. It's the birth of salvation. For here we have Israel caught in the grip and the power of sin. And when we come to Judges chapter 13, the grip is so powerful. And their apostasy, their fall, their run, their dive into this sin is so complete that God has totally given them up over to the Philistines. There is no God consciousness in the nation. And how do we know this? It's because this is the first time in this cycle that Israel looks at its state under the the, the evil uh, uh, rule of the Philistines and they don't repent. Have done evil in the sight of the Lord. And God has for 40 years given them over to the enemy. But prior to this, having been under the weight and the authority and the power of their enemy, they eventually would come to themselves and repent. Did you notice here in our text? There is no repentance. Their apostasy is complete. There's no repentance mentioned, apparently. There's no repentance desired. Israel is lost. She, she, she's in the grips and the rain, under the reign of sin. And like us, and like us, beloved, if she is going to be saved now, if she's going to be saved, it will not be because she willed it, but because God wills it. If she's going to be saved, it is not because she desires mercy, but it will be because God shows mercy, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9. And like to us, so to them, his mercy and love is demonstrated in that a child is born, a son is given. You see here in verses 3 through 5, you see this idea that a Savior is born. Notice what the text says. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you will conceive and bear a son, and he will begin to save Israel from the hand. Of the Philistines. Here we see a couple of things. The first thing we see is that this baby is born supernaturally. 
This is a supernatural birth. It would seem that, that God has frequently used the means of miraculous birth to bring forth his messenger, even his saviors, into the world. It would seem that even here we are reminded that the barren womb is fertile soil for the fruit of deliverance. A barren womb reminds us that what is impossible with God is what is impossible with us is possible with God. We see, we see at the birth of the nation of Israel that Israel itself as a nation was born out of barren womb. Think about that. When God called Abraham and he begins to gather a people unto himself, and he begins to form the nation of, of Israel into a people for his own glory and possession, Abraham's wife, Sarah, is what? She's barren. She's barren. And out of that barren womb, she gives birth to Isaac. And then Isaac goes out and he marries who? Rebecca. And we discover that Rebecca, Isaac's wife, has a barren womb. And God miraculously moves upon her and she gives birth to another. And his name is Jacob. Jacob is out and he marries Rachel. And we discover with Jacob and Rachel as they are trying to have children, Rachel's womb is what? Amazing, isn't it, how God is bringing his people into existence and making sure that their very existence is miraculous. It would seem that the barren womb is no hindrance to the purpose, the power, and the deliverance. God. And we understand, we understand this idea of barren womb. All of us could, most of us in here could probably testify to knowing someone who even haven't experienced it our, ourselves, this idea that our womb is barren, that we desire to have children and can't. Perhaps we, would set, we have sat with those who have prayed for God to come and give them children because it just seems like they try and they try and they try. And they can't have children. Know the frustration that, that sets in. Oh, the disappointment. And even depression. The melancholy, the hurt the disappointment and the pain. And yet, we see here in this text, there's an added dimension, there's an added importance, there's an added element. 
for perhaps even those among us and those who we know eventually by the providence of God may be brought into the place where they are able to have children. Perhaps we have prayed and God was gracious unto that person and that person was able to bear children and we rejoice with them that God has so offered them and graced them and blessed them with the fruit of the womb. That's providence. But here we don't just have providence. We don't just have supernatural providence. What we have here is a supernatural promise. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Many a woman, after having been long bearing, has borne a son or daughter by providence. But Samson, is born by promise. God has not promised any of us that we would have children. But here he comes to Manoah's wife. And not only is it supernatural providence, but it is a promise. So that Samson is not just a providential child. He is a promised child. Promised. A child of promise. And is that not familiar with us as we have come out of the Christmas season? Is, does that not ring true in our ears as we meditate and reflect again upon the Christ, upon our Lord, upon Mary and Joseph? And we know that the birth of Christ is like the birth of Samson, the birth of the promise of God's deliverance. And in this, it is a demonstration of his unmerited, unearned, sovereign grace to us. Here's the nation of Israel in their sin, not praying for a savior, not crying out for deliverance. And yet God comes in their midst and says, I am going to send you a deliverer. Think about what Paul says in Galatians chapter four, when he says about Christ, when the fullness of Christ, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. God sent him. God came looking upon the estate of humanity, looking upon the sinfulness of his people, seeing that they were on the merry-go-round of sin. He sent his son. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, Paul is even more explicit when he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But get this, God showing his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
while we were still on the merry-go-round. He showed his love in sending his son to die for us. This is the nature of sovereign grace. This is the nature of amazing grace. I don't know about you this morning, but salvation came to me when I was not seeking it. I was not crying out for mercy when mercy found me. I think the hymn writer has it right when he says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I who found you, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Perhaps you are familiar with and you like to sing the song. Falling in love with Jesus is the best thing that I've ever done. You be careful with that. That you don't take credit for loving Jesus. For the issue is not that you love Jesus, but that while you were still sinning, Christ loved you. I'm not interested in giving myself credit for loving Christ. I want to give him praise and glory for having loved me. This is God sending son into the world. This is God sending Samson to these people and saying, it's going to deliver you. Here is your salvation. But it's not only just supernaturally born, but even in his birth, he is set apart. And we see the sanctification, the, the sanctity of it all. So he's born under the mark of the Nazarite vow. And this vow was instituted by God in Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 1 through 21. And you can, you can read the, 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 the elements of the Nazarite vow, but it was mark, basically a mark of separation. No wine, no, no strong drink, nothing of the vine to be drunk, no unclean food, no contact with the dead, no cutting of the hair. And normally when you read Numbers chapter 6, normally this vow that is placed upon Samson and placed upon his, his mother for the time is a vow that the person would voluntarily receive. If the man or the woman volunteers to be separated unto God to demonstrate this separation from the world, then he would take upon these characteristics in his life. But here, Samson does not volunteer for it. Manoah's wife doesn't volunteer for it. This is the commissioning of God. It reminds us that this salvation is not about Samson. Ultimately, it's about God. And God here is demonstrating with Samson a need for the people to understand just how much they had capitulated to their society. Just, had, just how much they had found themselves living like the Philistines. God will show them, even in the birth of this boy, what separation from the world needs to be. And 
how when God calls us unto unto salvation, he calls us unto separation from the world. He calls us in Christ not only to be saved, but also to be holy. So that this is no ordinary birth because this is no ordinary child. And it reminded me of, of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 when the prophecy is given that for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice the dynamics in that prophecy. The child was born to the parents, but the son was given to the nation. The child Samson is born unto Manoah and his wife. But the son given unto the nation. So it is when Christ comes into the world, the child is born unto Mary. But the son is given to the nations. The son is given to the world. Manoah seems to understand this. At least he has some inkling that this is no ordinary birth and therefore this is no ordinary child. And while the child may be given to us, there's something special about this son that we've been given. And so the, but so Manoah inquires of the angel of the Lord. Verse 12, he says, and what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? What are we supposed to do with this boy? And the angel says, angel reminds him that the message, the mission is the same as I told to your wife. What is that mission? In verse five, he was born to save. His mission is salvation. He came to begin the process of salvation of the nation from the Philistines. Isn't that reminiscent of the word of the angel to Joseph? In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, when the angel comes to Joseph and Joseph is wondering, what is this all about? And the angel says, You're going to call that boy's name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to complete the salvation of his people from sin. And so we see here a picture of Christ even in the birth of Jesus. But it is in miniature. It is in seedling form. For Samson, it says, he is going to begin to save the nation. Notice what the angel says about Jesus. Nothing about beginning to save. He says, he's going to save. Samson had come to begin the salvation. Samson was only going to save in part. Christ would come and save completely. 
Samson could be described as the author of salvation. Christ comes as the author and finisher of our salvation. Doesn't come to save in part. He comes to save in whole. That's why the hymn writer could say my sins, not in part, but the whole have been nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Therefore, it is well with my soul. My sins, not in part, but the whole. The whole. The whole. And Christ, unlike Samson, has not come just to begin our salvation. He has come to complete it. To finish it. And it is done. And if that is the case, then what is the response? And you come into the knowledge of the Savior who has come into the world, who you didn't ask for, who you were not crying out for, and God has revealed his mercy and grace to you. What is your response? Well, the only proper response is worship. Worship. And so what does Manoah do? He makes a sacrifice. The Savior is born. And here we see a sacrifice is made. This is the only response to the promises and the provisions of God. And salvation is worship. So notice in verse 19, he says, So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering." And offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching. And they fell on their faces to the ground. You do understand This is all God wants. This is all God ever wants. When Manoah first got in his mind of all seeing all these wonderful things and hearing all these glorious promises and listening to the angel of the Lord, the first thing he wants to do is offer him some food. Hey, man, why don't you sit down a while? Let us feed you. And the angel of the Lord said, I don't need anything from you. Except worship. Don't need any other response. Except that you acknowledge. And that you worship. That you bow down and offer the sacrifice of praise. That you bow your face to the ground and understand that you are not worthy of these promises. You are not worthy of these provisions. You're not worthy of this salvation. I don't need anything from you. You just bow down. Worship Worship is fitting, the psalmist says in Psalm 147. It is fitting. It is fitting that we would worship. Worship is what we should do. And Manoah and his wife reminds us that to worship God rightly is to comprehend two important things. 
The first one is to understand the awesomeness of God's holiness. To understand the awfulness of your sin. After he makes this sacrifice and after the angel goes up in the sacrifice, Manoah rightly looks at his wife and he trembles with fear. Why? Because he says, we are going to die because we've seen the face of God. We've seen, this is, this is a right experience when you come into experiencing the holiness of God. It's a right experience. Moses understood this. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20, and even more so, Isaiah realized this in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 6. Realizing that coming into the presence of God, coming into the holiness of God, and daring to stand in his presence. Those who understand rightly, Understand that there is, there is an awesome tension that comes when holiness meets sin. Sin must die. You ever wonder why Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden? It's because they understood something that is lost on us. They understood that God is not simply angry with the sin. God is angry with sinners. And God is not for one moment backing down off of his holiness. And so here is Manoah and his wife. Once it clicks, we've been in the presence of God. We're not going to make it, darling. We're done. This is the expected consequence of sin. I think too often we just take sin too lightly and in doing so we take the holiness of God too lightly. I think we should consider again and again the fact that we are able to worship. Think about this, beloved. We are able to worship God, that we are able to sing, that we are able to to read his word. We are able to pray and our sins at any very moment does not bring the wrath of his holiness down upon us. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 and 29 that when we come to God we are to offer to God an acceptable worship but we are to do it with reverence and awe or fear and trembling because our God is a consuming fire. This is why beloved we don't play light with worship. This is why you don't get, you don't just flippantly come into the worship of God. This is why you don't get trite and frivolous with the songs that you sing. 
and the prayers that you pray. That's why we don't come to church and we're not here to play games. The Bible reminds us that our God is a consuming fire and you best come with reverence and awe, with fear and trembling. The fear of God, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom, does it not? But you know the fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God is the beginning of worship. And you would know the fear of God. Manoah knew it. He understood it. And he trembled in his place. And the only thing that saves him is what he finds in the, in, in the words of his wife. What a discerning, what a gracious, what a godly woman, unnamed though she be. She reminded him, Manoah, a sacrifice has been made and the substitute has been accepted. Does she not? For, you know, Manoah rightly, he rightly thought that they would die. And yet his wife righteously and graciously reminds him that the substitute had already died in their place. Look at what she said. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things and now announced to us such things as these. If the Lord, if the Lord had meant to kill us, we would already be dead. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the offering in our place. Manoah is right. But what he forgets is that that is what the sacrifice was for. That's what the offering was for. The sacrifice was there so that the wrath of God would not fall upon them. The sacrifice was there so that the holiness of God could be satisfied so that they could worship. The sacrifice was there so that their sin would no longer be a barrier to relationship with the Holy God. If he had meant to kill you, he would not have accepted the sacrifice. Let me just offer a little footnote here in passing. Let's put to death this hellish doctrine that Christians can lose their salvation. For if he meant to kill you, he wouldn't have accepted Christ on your behalf. Let's put out of our minds this devilish understanding that God would sacrifice Christ on your behalf and then eternally sacrifice you as well. No, beloved. 
to kill you, he wouldn't have killed Jesus. So it is here, wonderful demonstration of the mercy and grace of God. Not only is his wrath taken away, here is the twofold, two aspects of salvation. Not only are your sins removed, but now he has opened your eyes to wondrous and glorious things. Not only is a sin taken away, but now you have become the recipients of an abundant grace and blessing. For she said, if he had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted the offering, but instead he has shown us wonderful things. He has opened up our eyes and he has blessed us with the precious promises of a savior child. He's ours. He's ours, Manoah. He's ours by the grace of God. He has opened my womb. He's ours. But he's not only opened my womb, but he's promised that the reign of the Philistines is only short time. Soon we'll be done with the troubles of the world. Soon we'll be done with the troubles of the world. Soon we'll be done with the troubles of the world. Sin will be no more. The Philistines will be no more. Because I have the birth and the provision and the provision and the promise of God in me. In me. Manoah. If you are saved this this morning. God has also promised you and has shown you wonderful things, mighty things, awesome things. The things that Peter writes that the angels themselves long to look into. These wonderful things of the promise of Christ coming into the world and redeeming his people. But not only that, but promising them that they shall be like him. Glorious things, wonderful things, things that are hard for us to understand, to comprehend, marvelous, extraordinary things, awesome things, too awesome to tell. He has broken the power of sin in your life. He has gotten you off of that merry-go-round. Awesome things. The type of things that when you begin to talk about them, tears begin to well up in your eyes. Those things. The type of things, as you try to explain it to somebody, chill bumps come down your arms and the hair on your back of your neck stands up. Those things. But you say like Charles Wesley again, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing his praises and to tell you of those things. How much time do you have? 
those things of which we will be telling and singing about all of eternity as the angels sit around and in sanctified envy wonder how can they sing so well? How can they adore him so well? How can they worship him with such power? We look at the angels and we say, you haven't seen what I've seen. You don't know what I know. And Gabriel and Michael and the rest of you, you can't tell it like I can tell it. How much time do you have, Michael? How much time can you spare, Gabriel? Let me tell you the wonderful, awesome, glorious, powerful thing. God has delighted to show me. Oh, beloved, take it not for granted that you are saved this day. And know that the worship that you have of God is a worship that God has ordained because a Savior is born because a sacrifice was made. Oh, but most important, that substitute was accepted. It was all done for you and for me. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King. The triumph of his grace. Let us pray.